let's thank God. Dear Lord, we're grateful <clears throat> for another pleasant day, and we ask that you would bless our time in your word and give us a reasonable minds, able to understand what's going on and follow the thought that St. Paul leads us through. In your son's name, amen. Well, we're in chapters 7 and 8 of the book of Romans. It is a oft-proof text set of passages. In other words, like there's one section in chapter 8 that different theological groups pick one verse, the next verse is picked by another theological argument, the next verse is... But people proof texting rather than uh, getting the flow of the thought that's been going through Romans. and not that the verses can't apply to what they apply them to, but, but once you look at the context, you, well, you might say, well, hold it, that doesn't seem to be talking about what people often assign it to. We're, we're basically um, having looked through the first six chapters of Romans. Um, we are uh, pretty convinced Paul believes everybody's a sinner. Jew and Gentile alike, that's probably the key thing, that salvation is by faith in the death of Jesus Christ, not by works of the law, and um, that uh, although it's by faith, it's no excuse to sin. He started out chapter 6 with that great passage, how can we who have died to sin still live in it? What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How could we who died to sin still live in it? And he talks about the nature of the Christian death. That there is a, that in some way, and you can do some meditating on this, some way which the the act of faith is a a killing of you. We'll talk a little bit about how that is um, tonight. Because he addresses, in the first part of chapter 7, he addresses this question, or comes up with an illustration that will help. Do you not know, brethren, for I am speaking to those who know the law. That means he's going back and forth in Romans between talking to a Gentile audience largely, talking to a Jewish audience largely, because he's got that kind of split church in in Rome that that he's having to answer questions about, and they have different kinds of reactions. Sometimes it's everybody, sometimes it's Gentile, sometimes it's Jew. But I'm speaking to those who know the law that the law is binding on a person only during his life. Thus a married woman is bound by law to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is discharged from the law concerning her husband. Accordingly, she'll be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Okay, nice, tidy. Someone, that kind of contracts, it's only broken by death. Now, what's interesting here is the wife is freed to marry another by the death of her husband. But Paul then does a little switch up. Likewise, verse 4, my brethren, you have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another. Hold it thought it was the husband that dies and the wife is free. You have died. So you're like the dead husband in this situation. Uh, uh, The illustration was just to show you that death separated this contract 
free to marry another, free to go over to something else. And the Jews would be, and there's been a trouble with uh, Jews who considered Christianity, the degree of, of uh, loyalty that they may still feel to Judaism. And the New Testament is replete with passages that trying to let those Jews know they need to die to the old system. That's why it's called the Old Covenant. And Christianity is called the New Covenant. It is, it's a replacement. It's, a, it's, a, it's an ending of the one and a beginning of the new. The book of Hebrews says it was becoming obsolete. It wasn't doing the job that people were saying it was supposed to do. Only the work of Christ could do that. You have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another. So, the woman was freed by the death of her husband. You are freed by your own death to the law so that you can belong to another. The point is, the death, intervening death, makes you able to marry again. In physical relationships, the husband who dies doesn't generally get married again, so don't push the illustration too far. But he switches it over to the dead party being the one who marries. You may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. The basic problem with the law was not that it was too holy or too Jewish or too ethnocentric or too vicious or too whatever. It didn't work. We're going to get into his argument as to why the law, the Mosaic law, the Ten Commandments, that sort of stuff, didn't work. The, the, the idea of it not working was it didn't produce what it claimed to produce. God's desire is for righteousness in his creation. He is good. He made a, when he made the world, he said he looked upon it and it was good. And then, uh, again, the women got involved and destroyed it for everybody. And uh, that, um, um, that sets, not the, sets a different problem on the stage, but not, this, not the different desired result. The different desired result was... Uh, do you need a chair? You want to sit here? You want to sit? Okay, that's just fine. It's on This, see, it's women. Just like Eve, ate the egg. Fruit of the tree, the knowledge of good and evil. And any chance, any chance for misogyny? I want that fruit. Okay, all right. We'll have to have them edit that out in the uh, in studio. Um, did you get a set of notes? I didn't. She can use. Them. I have my Bible. Oh yeah. Well, that's probably not good enough. Thanks. This is the special Evan Wilson yeah. stuff here on the side. Yeah. You, uh, you will be you will be strangely blessed and moved by this other column of smaller type. Motion Bible study. Yeah, the people who ever say, I'm going to get that Roman study. This is what happened to you. There's a guy in Seattle who wants it already, but I fell. I fell. And my, my wife's gone. Are you going to be gone a while? I'm just grabbing some water. Okay. All right, where were we? What verse were we in? The idea that God still wants righteousness out of his creation. So that this process of dying to the law, so that we can marry another, 
we can marry Christ to him who has been raised from the dead. So the, the, the gain is that we would bear fruit for God. The idea is we need righteousness. God wants righteousness out of us. Um, Christ died to deal with the sin problem that was in the way of righteousness. And uh, uh, that's what, what is accomplished in our dying. While we were living, verse 5, in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. So the equation is, while we were living that way, our passions took, took uh, the law in hand. We're going to get to why that is, that sin and law go hand in hand. They are uh, related to each other in some functional way. We're at work in our members to bear fruit for death. We were supposed to bear fruit for God, verse 4, and the flesh, our passions, and the law brought about bearing fruit for death. But now we are discharged from the law. Now, you notice he doesn't say, died to sin. Now, he, can, he says that in other places, chapter 6, verse 1. How can you have died to sin, still live in it? But he has here in verse 4, died to the law. We are discharged from the law. Because he has tied those two, the arousal of your passions by the law is the equation that makes wickedness. We're going to get into why wickedness requires, it says in another place in Romans, without the law, without the law, there is no transgression. There is, sin is not counted where there is no law. He says that a couple of times, and once in these two chapters, he makes a comment along those lines. Law and sin are twins. They go together, at least. We're discharged from the law, dead to that which made held us captive, so that we serve, not under the old written code, but in the new life of the Spirit. This bearing fruit for God, this idea of righteousness, is being accomplished only through this process. You die. And that sets you free from the law, just like in a marriage it would. And you're dead to the things that... Um, that was twisting your mind. Law and sin were twisting your mind to bear fruit for death. And so we're, 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 we're let go. It's like um, when people can fake their death. Say they got a big economic problem or something and they fake their death. It's a few times in the last few years somebody you know, pretended to crash their plane and ended up uh, sneaking around and trying to get a new identity and, and try to get out from under all the financial load because all the things that would be held against them are removed by death. Well, that's what happens, happens to us. So, when I say this, when he said, dead to the law, aroused by the law, discharged from the law, we're not under the old written code, and I want to remind Christians that even when somebody says, you mean even the Ten Commandments? Yes, even the Ten Commandments. You are not under the law. You are dead to the law. That's just Paul's argument. But you look at the Ten Commandments, and, and they're so good, right? It says, it says, don't murder people. Isn't that good, Evan? You're trying to say, we're, we're not, most people think when antinomianism is mentioned, antinomian means anti-against-nomos law. 
Okay? An antinomian is someone who is generally viewed as a wild partier. In other words, hey, there is no rules, I can do what I want. Paul is an antinomian and he says we're dead to the law so we can do what God wants. Because the law wasn't helping us do what God wants. The law was just arousing our sin. And until we die, that's going to be the case. But we have to die to that old written code. We have to die to the law. But first, let's, let's remember, he's talking to a Jewish audience, and they're looking, they're probably sitting in their pews in Rome, if they had pews, looking at the reader of the letter askance, give him the hairy eyeball, saying, okay, I'm not sure I like this, Paul. They've never met him. He hasn't been to Rome. And he's writing this pretty heavy stuff to Jews. What shall we say? What, what then shall we say? That the law is sin? It's, it's right there with sin. It's something we have to die. It's arousing sin. Is it bad? By no means. You've got to understand that when you read the law, you're going to be reading righteousness. In many, we have to understand it, but you understand what it's for, but it's a righteousness from God to the people of the Jews in 1447 B.C., handed down from Mount Sinai. Yet, if it not been for the law, I should not have known sin. I should not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, and he quotes one of the Ten Commandments here, you shall not covet. One of the Ten Commandments. He's not talking about the little laws about don't boil a kid in its mother's milk and don't co-sign a note and, and treat your wall that has mildew this way. Uh, don't eat grasshoppers. We're not talking about extraneous laws. We're talking about the big ones, the ten, the Decalogue. You shall not covet. I wouldn't have known what it was to covet if the law hadn't said, you shall not covet. But sin, finding opportunity in the commandment, wrought in me all kinds of covetousness. And like I was just saying, apart from the law, sin lies dead. The law makes sin. Okay. The law makes sin. Because if there's no law, sin's dead. Paul said, I wouldn't have known coveting if it hadn't told me, don't do that. Now this is a concept regarding ethics that you've got to get in your head. Not only, you, you have to have for it to be a moral will, a moral, a moral constraint, you have to have an overarching agent, not yourself, that your actions are held against his will. In other words, he has a set of oughtnesses. You ought to be this. And either it's the Gentiles, like he said at the beginning of Romans, that who they do by nature what the law requires, showing that the law is written on their hearts. So non-pagans, who barbarians who weren't Jews, they had some law. They had conscience. They understood what was good and bad. The Jews had it exquisitely with a lot of clarity. They had the Ten Commandments, then they had all of Leviticus and all of Deuteronomy, um, laying out the law of the Jews. But Paul is saying, that is what makes sin. Even though it's a statement of good. So we can't say it is sin, it makes sin. Without which, sin can't exist. 
you know, if you left the kids at home for an, of an afternoon, and they say, mother, father, uh, any rules? No, anything you want to do. And they come back, and you got a little fire in the living room on the floor, <laughs> and there's bubble gum on the walls, and, and uh, you can't really punish them now, can you? Because they didn't do anything wrong. There weren't any rules. No rules. No sin. Apart from the law, sin lies dead. Now, Paul's going to go into a description of his relationship to the law as a person. He said, I, he started it with, I would not know what it was to covet if the law hadn't said, thou shalt not covet. He says, well, let's, let's, why, is, why is this the case? Is it, people, some people think that sin is a commodity or a thing, a kind of evil, you know, that some amorphous black tar-like thing that seeps into your body and makes you do bad things. Or, um, it's a will. It's a willfulness regarding something. And it's regarding, as you know, the law. What happens is you have a set of desires. Let's, let's say desire A for well, coveting, like wanting things for yourself, wanting stuff. And that can just go on. That, that has a gradient. It could increase. You can want more and more and more and more and more. And that's just you answering your desire, right? You have a desire, I want more stuff. Nothing wrong with wanting more stuff. And then some other, someone who has the power to judge you, puts an oughtness across the middle of that desire and says, pass this, don't do that anymore. You can want a present for your birthday, you can enjoy the cookies, don't covet your neighbor's house, your neighbor's wife, your neighbor's manservant, your neighbor's maidservant. Don't covet these things. Don't, don't have yourself moved by always having a desire for wanting. He just puts a, a barbed wire fence or a, um, uh, some kind of restraint across the middle of your desire. It's completely permeable, but it's just a notice that says, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't covet, honor your father and mother, love the Lord your God, love your neighbor as yourself, lines across your desires. What other than the fact that, that, that God will then punish, because is it, is it arbitrary? He goes, eh, it could be anything. I could say, don't eat kumquats, and, and that's going to be the rule. Is it arbitrary? Well, even if he said, don't eat kumquats, because he did say, don't eat pigs, right? don't eat pork, and don't eat unclean animals, things like that. How was that, how are we to understand the existence and nature of sins? Understanding, understanding, it lets you know in the scriptures to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves and have a little serpentine quality here. Understand what the beast you're fighting is. The beast is not that the other side of the line is somehow wickedness. It's the it's the bad stuff. It, it, all these desires that you have were made by God. All the things in the world were made by God. The law steps in, sin is created. The law steps in because when a law exists across your desires, you have a choice when you get to the fence, especially a completely permeable fence. 
and it just there's no fence at all matter of fact it just notice it says no trespassing don't go here stay out no lock no door no key needed just will right all of a sudden you are making a decision between God who said no and your desire which said yeah I think I do I would not known it wrought in me all kinds of covetousness all of a sudden I really wanted what was past the line if you if you ever have children and I had children and if you ever have electrical outlets and children all you have to do they may stumble across an electrical outlet just because it's a wall anomaly and they will first time they get to it they'll come up and touch it and you, you'll notice and you go Graham no and they'll look at you and their hand will go back to the outlet like this and you'll pow you get well it'll get 110 across the heart but they get a get equivalent to that in parental discipline and then they, and they go and all of a sudden they're looking for opportunities you not in the room oh they want they that somehow the rule made that electrical outlet like gold. Now, it's a choice. Sin is a choice of who you serve. I say it here on the side. It is not, do I want that? It is, do I want that which he says I may have? It's a choice of government. Suddenly, remember we were talking about the nature of faith, is us choosing to leave ourself behind and turn toward God. To cease taking our own right over our life and saying, I'm going to run this in accord with all the pleasures and pains I feel according to my wisdom. I'm going to run it according to God's wisdom. That's the, the basic choice. I'm going to seek him rather than seek myself. Every sin and every permutation of that sin in this world are people enjoying the fruit of them pursuing their choices about arranging their life the way their pleasures dictated to them and the avoidance of their pains dictated to them. It's a, it's a, it's sin is a matter of government. The law was just the edge of his empire. The edge of your... Yeah, suddenly you found out you were living in God's world when the law came. And you wanted it to still be yours. It deceives us. What it says here, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. Remember, it was dead without the law. The law came into his life at a point in time and it came, sin comes to life, and he died. That is Romans 5. Therefore, as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all men sinned. This is Paul's accounting of his moment. I was alive, spiritually alive. The law came in. His father was a Pharisee. And he said, little Paul, or Saul, whatever he called him, don't do that. Don't touch the outlet. Don't covet the outlet. And by his decision to ignore that and to still serve himself rather than the, the, the God of the law, he died spiritually. The very commandment which promised life proved to be death to me. 
for sin, finding opportunity in the commandment, deceived me, and by it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and just and good. So we have to affirm that the law was good. It represented good, but it was this throwdown of God's across a man's life who had heretofore been used to making his own command decisions about what he enjoyed, how much he rewarded himself for his pleasure. You see a little Walmart kid, we call them the Walmart, Walmart babies, that are throwing little tantrums on the floor of the toy department at Walmart, and the mother says, I'm gonna don't make me count. And she never counts, and the kid keeps screaming, and finally they buy him the toy. <laughs> well, that, that's how we are. We, 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 there's no restraint, no restraint. We are like that. We are deceived because it's natural for us to believe that you are the closest and most concerned for your welfare. You're the one who feels that pleasure. You're the one who feels that pain. If I have a headache, Olivia doesn't feel a thing. She is not, doesn't pity me, doesn't even think about it, doesn't... Um, doesn't think that I should be making decisions based on it, but it's my pain. I'm feeling it. I can only tell you how much it hurts. No one else can. Or how much the pleasure I'm having out of onion rings or whatever it is I'm having pleasure out of. So it is natural for me to assume sin deceives you because it seems to you that there isn't someone more interested in you than you. Or that someone isn't more capable of governing your life than you. That's a very natural assumption. The problem is the one that could would be the God. The one that claims it is the one who made heaven and earth and consequently has a little better handle on what's going to destroy your life and what isn't. It deceives you. You're, you're making a natural decision. It's stupid, but natural. But understand what you're doing. You're, you're, you're looking at your desires, and it says, what? I can't be immoral? What do you mean, can't be immoral? That's, that's just being churchy. That's just being, don't, don't tell me I can't do that. That's what's killing you, is you choosing at that moment. What becomes sin is you're turning your back on the law of God and saying, I'm stepping over the line. Because I have to serve me. Of all things, I have to serve me. But God is trying to kill. This is why it's death to you. Faith is death to you. You die to the law. You die so that you can live. Okay? Because as soon as you die to this essential choice regarding death, as soon as you have faith, that's what kills you, right? When you say, Lord, I give up. When I say, I'm, I'm, I'm done. I've, I've mucked this up pretty bad. I'm guilty of all this sin. I can't trust myself to make another decision even about the clothes I wear tomorrow. Um, let's, let's just say I'm done here and I submit myself to you for your forgiveness, the work of your son on the cross for my for my sins, that is described as dying because the self has collapsed. And that's what has to happen because sin is this claim of self against the claim of law and the law is rubbing it and irritating it and pushing it and saying, no, you, may go, you can't go there, can't go there. And you're saying, and it has no power. The law has no 
It's got nothing except the eternal judgment, which you don't really sort of notice when you're at John's Alley. Well, some aspects of the eternal judgment you notice at John's Alley, but usually in other people. So, you got that. Law is good, but the way it functions is to create sin. And unless you die to yourself, sin is going to be the process. You're going to follow your desires rather than God's desire. God wants to create righteousness in you. He wants to create peace in you. He wants to create life in you. And he needs to arrange your life his way. And he needs you to bow the knee. Because he's a God and you're not. And he knows what's going on and you don't. So unless you're deceived about the wisdom, the great wisdom of your decision-making powers about moral issues, um, I would recommend you bow the knee. Verse 13. Did that which is good, then, bring death to me? That's what it sounds like. By no means. It was sin. Working death in me through what is good. The law just represented the good. The law just was a standard. It, it, it wasn't malevolent. It wasn't trying to say, um, why don't you ignore me? It wasn't saying, why don't you be a hypocrite? It was just saying, no, absolute holiness. Love the Lord your God with all your body, soul, spirit, mind, everything you got. Love your neighbor as yourself. Real difficult. And then Jesus comes along and goes, yeah, I was thinking, even if you hate your brother, you're a murderer. And even if you lust after a woman, you're an adulterer. He made it even worse. You know, just, just ramped it up. The moral law is just this unforgiving standard. But through that, through what is good, it worked sin worth that worked death, in order that sin might be shown to be sin. So it's not just me living along a continuum of my desires without knowing anything was sin. Without law, there wasn't sin. Without law, sin was dead. Without, there was no transgression involved. Sin is always a transgression. Not a degree of pleasure. It's not like you turn the pleasure knob up to 11 and you're in sin. That's, that's not... If it feels that good, it's good. Well, that's the old sort of the Puritan sort of viewpoint. If you, if you had, was the, I think that's Ambrose Bierce in his Devil's Dictionary. Uh, was it a Puritan? Someone who has a suspicion that somewhere somebody is enjoying himself. <laughs> You know, that, that, that any kind of enjoyment, probably, probably not good. And that's because people are viewing sin incorrectly. They're thinking it's someplace just arbitrarily on the continuum of your pleasure. Sin becomes sin when law intervenes and says, no, no further. But in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. So that's what you know, Paul argues in various places, that the law was there to increase the trespass, to increase your sense of guilt. It didn't make you good. It just represented good. It didn't make you good. Matter of fact, it probably made you evil. It took, it took on. And so at this point, Paul starts to use what is called the historic present. Now, there's arguments in Christian circles. I am affirming that because this is what I believe. The historic present is a Greek usage that is not represented in any of the physical forms of the language. It is just the present tense. 
In this part of Romans 7, if you haven't read Romans 6, and you haven't read the first part of Romans 7, and you just jump right in here, you're going to be saying, oh yeah, that's just like my Christian life. I'm, I've got this war going on between good and bad, and it's called a two-nature of the believer view. See, it says, I am carnal, sold under sin, present tense. Now, <clears throat> that, uh, <clears throat> that notion cannot be sustained with what Paul just said. It cannot be sustained with what Paul. How can you, who have died to sin, still live in it? You must consider, it's later in chapter 6, you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. You, you must. And now he says, <clears throat> we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. Now he's, what he's transferred in, the historic present in Greek, is always noticed by context, because it's not noticed by actual case endings or things like that. It is the same as a regular present, but you notice it because it's obvious that he's talking about a past situation. Now the thing that is described here in Paul is so clearly a non-Christian Pharisee. Someone devoted to the law and unrighteous. And so clearly not what Paul teaches in this passage about the life of the Christian. The reason we have died to the law so that we can bear fruit for God. All right? We were discharged for the law to have a new life in the Spirit. And how he says, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. And this is how he describes it. I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree that the law is good. So then it is no longer I that do it, but sin which dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells within me, that is, in my flesh. I can will what is right, but I cannot do it. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil that I do not want is what I do. Now if I do what I do not want, sounds like a Frank Sinatra tune. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I that do it, but sin which dwells within me. Now, Paul has been following a trajectory through this passage. He is talking about the nature of death and the law, what are supposed to be. Then he says, I was once alive apart from the law. When, when, when was that? Spiritually alive. This is, this plays old havoc, havoc with the original sin. He was alive, spiritually alive, hadn't died yet spiritually, before the law came into his life. When the law came in, he disobeyed it, and he died. So that was the transition from, you might say, infant innocence, young child innocence. My belief is that children, regardless of nationality or religious background, are innocent before God because they don't have any law. They don't have any moral conditions in their life. They're just following their urges, and, they're learn and at a certain point they'll have a conscience, and at a certain point they'll be taught the law of God. At that point, they die. Paul's now describing, as he goes through, what law had done to him. And he was in a situation as a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee, a law-based household. He's one of those groups that everybody admires, but nobody wants to join. You know, it's, it's just too difficult. Um, 
they were, I had 400 and some odd hedge laws that they had worked up around um, the various laws of the Old Testament. So to make sure, they had extra laws to make you sure you didn't get close to breaking the real laws. They had their own set. That's what Sabbath day's journeys were, you know. They had worked out how many stadia you could walk and, and turn around and get home without having doing any work. So they were very, very meticulous about it. And Paul saying, I, I, I wanted, I willed, I, my head was wrapped around these things, but I couldn't do it. Now, this is, again, not describing someone who says that we are set free. How, how can we who have died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So I've already been there in chapter 6. Chapter 6 happened last week for us, and we ought to be totally convinced that we're dead to sin. We must consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God. And he's talking here like, I'm dead to sin. I'm not doing it unless he's talking about himself as an unbeliever. I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, this is verse 21, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inmost self. But I see in my members another law at war with the law of my mind. His mind was set on the law of the Jews. But this other law was making me captive to the law of sin, which is this other law, which dwells in my members. So he is experiencing this problem of law and sin coupled together in his unregenerate life. Wretched man that I am. That's not a Christian. Who will deliver me from this body of death? That's not a Christian. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's pointing at the gospel, which makes you a Christian. He said, that's how I got out of this problem. So then I, of myself, I have that in red because that's what he is without the gospel of Jesus Christ. I serve the law of God with my mind and with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Now, how does he think, remember, the mind and the flesh, the mind and the flesh. Remember, your whole pattern of following your desires was based on you feeling, I want this, it feels good. I don't want that, it feels bad. So I pursue my desires, and I, I, I avoid the negative desire, and I pursue the positive desire. Those are my feelings, that's my flesh, that's scratching the itch. The Jew, or anybody who was a moralist, who was looking at conscience and moral rightness, understood what was good, wanted what was good. Their mind tried to wrap itself and study what was good all the time, served in the mind, but the mind isn't, doesn't have the will to un undo the captive state that they're in because of their flesh. First one of chapter 8. He calls it a body of death. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Remember, that's what happens back in verse 5. We are living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law, we're at work in our members to bear fruit for death. 
He is just saying that's what he was in this passage, living in a body of death, because the law had aroused his passions and he could not obey the law. There is now, therefore now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, a, a third law steps in. There was the law, and there was the law of sin, or the law of his mind. The law of my mind, the law of sin. The law of mind, the law of flesh. He could have an ethical view here in the mind, but his passions were drawing him across the line. A third law steps in. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free from the other two laws, from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. What he, what he was just describing, I can't do the good, even though I know what the good is, and I want to do the good, I can't do the good. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. And until you die regarding your flesh, until you get set free from that rule and that urge, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the just requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. He's just saying the Christian the Christian isn't that guy at the end of chapter 7. The Christian has been set free. He can, he can meet the just requirement of the law. Because we are, we're, we're not trying to go back to the, that's warned in many places, we're not trying to go back to the law. We're trying, because the law doesn't produce anything, it represents the imperative of God. We are trying to meet the imperative of God, meet the righteousness of God through faith, and through the Spirit. It's the just requirement of the law will be fulfilled. But we're, we're warned not to go back to the law because that is, that is structured as a written code, the flesh, it is not, it is not your heart. Now, it lets you know um, that these things are flesh. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on things of the flesh. And those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Two different worlds. End of chapter 7, who is a mind set on the flesh, even the way of the law, and, and, his, and his desires. And for Christians, it's being set on the Spirit. To set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. And that's really what it comes down to. When I, when I look at... <clears throat> It's not just life and death, and you say, but yeah, doesn't the sinner get a lot more fun out of things? Well, yeah, I'm well, sure they do at certain moments, they get a lot more fun. But they don't get peace, because they don't control the universe, and they don't control how things work, and they don't control the human psychology, they don't control guilt. When you're not the lord of all things ethical, you didn't invent ethics, your society didn't invent ethics. If you convince your society that it's okay to kill Jews, it doesn't make it okay to kill Jews. It doesn't matter if all the Germans thought it was okay. It didn't become okay. And if we have a view about morality that, oh, it's okay to do this now, it's okay to get a shack up, it's okay to get drunk once in a while, it's okay to take drugs, it's okay to lie occasionally, white lies or big lies, it's okay to steal things, everybody 
they have too much for themselves. So you got all sorts of excuses for doing what we do. You can't do it enough. You don't control your psychology. You don't control the way the universe is made. And you will, you will die. You will die. Now, you might be able to drive yourself into some sociopathic, you know, selfishness that you can't even conceive of others so that you never feel anything. But life and peace are there in the spirit. The mind set on the spirit is life and peace. It's letting you know where your mind is set. Remember, it told you in chapter 6, you must consider yourselves dead to sin. You, you, you have to. That's your consideration, where your mind is. Your faith has to be a mental, it's assurance, what Hebrews defines it as, the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. You have to believe this is the way the world is. You have to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Not assent to the probably true, not assent that, yeah, this is the best religion, not assent to, no, that he is true, the gospel is true, your sins required his death or called for his death. Somebody's <coughs> death, and he died. And that death took care of your sin. Now, if I set my mind on the Spirit, life and peace, because the, 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 the pursuit of pleasure and the avoidance of pain is me trying to arrange in my selfish little way a life that is best arranged by, for my greatest sense of ease. And I think I'm going to do that, have enough balloons and birthday parties and cake and no spankings, colds, or mosquito bites. Okay, None of the bad things, all of the good things. And won't I then be happy? Well, you'd like to think that, but you don't arrange the world. You didn't make the world. You don't know what goes into the recipe for happiness and peace. Peace is the best arrangement of life in this world. And the Creator has the best arrangement of life in this world. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Okay? This is how we know that chapter 7 is about a non-believer. The mind set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. That's what he couldn't do. It couldn't submit. I couldn't do what was right. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Okay? In the flesh, mindset of the flesh equals non-Christian. But you are not in the flesh. You are in the spirit. If, in fact, God's spirit dwells in you. Now notice it's a couple things. You are in the spirit and the Spirit is in you. Okay? Not just... It's where I have gone, and it says... Um, when it says, draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Alright? That you, you've got both aspects. You joining in him, and he joining in you. But this is in the camp, out of the camp. Belief, unbelief. Uh, death, life. Faith, no faith. You know non-belief here. You know what it is here. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. I would like more Christians to hold that kind of definition. 
of what it is to be a Christian. We are, we have so many albatrosses hanging around our necks of people who are churched, even evangelically churched, who do not have the spirit of Christ and they don't belong to him. They're trying to live by the law of their church, they're trying to live by all the good rules, and they still have disobedience and, and lives going down the toilet because they don't belong to God. If your mind is set on the flesh, you can't please him. And if you don't have the spirit, you don't belong to him. It's a, I'm sorry, there's no half measures of Christians. Uh, um, Gunn was asking me the other night about what, who can we apply legitimately the term Christian to? Well, I don't like applying it to anybody who has not passed from death to life. That's just it. You know, I don't care if they've been in my church for 20 years. I, if they haven't passed from death to life, I don't want to consider them Christians. They say, well, if they say they're a Christian, well, I, I'll give you, I, I, won't, I won't say to someone else, they are a Christian. Unless I see that they've passed from death to life. If they affirm Jesus Christ and live the lifestyle of someone who belongs to him, who looks like they're pleasing God. When it says, the, if you're living, you are in the flesh cannot please God, we think of that Hebrews passage, without faith it is impossible to please God. This faith, this dying to yourself, this incorporation into the spirit is, when, Paul's, when Jesus Christ is talking to Nicodemus, the famous passage of God so loved the world, that portion, he talks about being born again. In this case, we're born again because we died first. We're buried with him in baptism and we're raised to newness of life. We're born from above. But if Christ is in you, verse 10, although your bodies are dead because of sin, your, your spirits are alive because of righteousness. Now, he's been talking about death and living and 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 I became a Christian many years ago, 50 years ago, and um, I'm dying slowly, <laughs> maybe quickly. I, I might be dead next week, but um, we know we're, Evan's going to be dead. Yeah, I get to the end, hopefully the end of the book, but We're still facing, we're not talking about when he said, I was once alive apart from the law, sin, the commandment came, sin came to life, and I died. We're not concerning ourselves with physical dying. Physical dying is not the death because of sin. Spiritual dying is the death because of sin. And I'm still going to die physically. And he's got to answer this. Though our bodies are dead because of sin, your spirits are alive because of righteousness. You're still going to physically die. The physical death is just, you might say, part of the physical futility that the whole creation was given over to because of sin. Now we get to that in a moment. Because he actually um, addresses that. But, he, but this brings, he's following along with these questions, what what did this all mean? What did the law mean? And how did the law change or bring about sin? And how does it relate to sin? Is it good? Is it bad? You know, what, what do we do with it? Um, uh, we're set free from it because we passed through a death in our faith. We were raised to newness of life in our faith. And this is the Spirit, and this is the Christ, and this is salvation. But if Christ is in you, although your bodies are dead because of sin, your spirits are alive because of righteousness. 
If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies also through his spirit which dwells in you. Oh, your mortal bodies. This, this, this thing. The promise of the Christian, two things in the gospel. Forgiveness of sin, life eternal. And the promise of life eternal is not in some ephemeral, vaporous, nirvana-like gas that you will dwell with other vaporous spirits kind of having a good time if spirits can have a good time. A state of bliss. It is a physical promise. Okay? That's though you can go read 1 Corinthians 15 about the nature of the resurrection body. It is raised a spiritual body. He is going to give life to your mortal bodies. That's the... You know, Paul says, okay, I wasn't talking in this death about your physical bodies. Your bodies are still dead because of sin. So what are we going to do with that physical death? Because we're living in an age where they're going to persecute us unto death. People are going to kill us because we're Christians. But he makes this promise. So then, and this, the rest of this, chapter 8, is about that promise. And it's in this section all those proof texts show up that people use for all sorts of other things, not the subject. But he's announced that, that God is going to give you life to your mortal bodies because he raised Christ from the dead and he's going to raise you. So then, brethren, we are debtors. It says, word is that debtors legitimate. We have an obligation. Not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die, in case you missed that point repeatedly given over the last chapter and a half. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. So I'm not just in the Spirit, and the Spirit is not just in me. This promise of God has put me under an obligation to be led by that Spirit, not just located, him and me, I and him, but led by the Spirit to become sons of God. For you are not received the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of sonship. When we cry, Abba, Father, it is the Spirit himself bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So just like I was in the Spirit and he in me, I am with Christ, with him in his death, and with him in his resurrection. And he, it, I, I give a small reference here to Galatians 4. And I, I wanted to show you, see it, Andrew? Thank you. Um, Galatians 4... And the same author, on the same subject, coming to the same conclusion. I mean, this is verse 1 of chapter 4 of Galatians, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no better than a slave, though he is the owner of all the estate. But he is under guardians and trustees until the date set by the Father. So with us, when we were children, we were slaves to the elemental spirits of the universe. 
But when the time had fully come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. For through God you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir. So he's making, and all of Galatians about, is about being set free from the law. Okay, if you missed the point of the book. So he even goes through the same thought line with the same reference to the Spirit, crying out, Abba, Father, with us. Because we are, having died to ourselves, this is an experience that is not joining a church. This is an experience that is not liking the Christians more than other people. And Yeah, they're a pretty ethical bunch. I think I want to belong to that. It's not a club joining. It's not a clique joining. It's an accountability before God where I die in the Spirit and I'm raised in the Spirit and I have a promise that I will die with Him in my physical life that I might also be glorified with Him. And all of this story, this forgiveness of sins, being set free from death, being set free from sin, set free from the law in this life, has a promise still coming of being glorified in our mortal bodies. He will give life to our mortal bodies. And that's the promise he's making. Provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. So none of us is escaping. We're not escaping into some sort of health and wealth gospel, great time, Christians will always be the richest and the healthiest and, and leaders of the world. No, it's not a great gig, this Christianity. It's, it's really, you, you do the right thing, you'll probably get persecuted. You know, people do not like this kind of, they don't like the morality of it, they don't like the grace of it, they don't like the denial of self part of it. I consider, and he's still talking on the same thing, that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. This is an encouraging section. He's going to encourage you all the way, because this is stuff you have not yet received. You've received Jesus Christ, you've passed from death to life, you've got the in the Spirit, you're in, in the Spirit, the Spirit's in you, and you're trying to be led by the Spirit because you know those things need to be put to death. For the creation waits with longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but by the will of him who subjected it in hope because the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the glorious liberty of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning and travailed together until now. He's talking about whatever has been made. Not us, whatever has been made. The whole creation has been groaning. And I made put the word groaning in red just so that you can see the trajectory of this. We are all, the, the guiltless, you want to say the guiltless creation, has been waiting in travail. Travail is labor. Is going into labor because it wants to be born into the glorious liberty of the children of God. It knows it's coming. It knows it will not be subjected to futility. As beautiful as the futility can be out there, the circle of life, as the Lion King suggests, orcas killing seals, leaves falling off of trees. All that death and decay, which is beautiful as it is, <coughs> is part of the futility of this world. It's been groaning, waiting for this. 
And not the creation, not only the creation, verse 23, but we ourselves. That's why I said, not us. Everything but us. All that was made, not man, has been groaning. But we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, that's our salvation, groan inwardly as we await for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Okay? So Paul's been arguing that, that, hey, this is what happened to you spiritually. Your bodies are still dead because of sin, so you're going to be, you've got a future that you've got to look at. The future is one that suffering is going to occur, and even if you're not persecuted unto death, you're going to die. How are you as a Christian supposed to view this? Well, the death, physical, is preceding the resurrection, spiritual, which is still going to be corporeal. When I say physical, I mean, I don't mean non-spiritual. I mean, it's, go it's going to be a, a body, a definitely a body. We groan, just like the creation groans. They groaned in travail to be born. We groan to be adopted. We groan inwardly as we wait for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. In this hope, we were saved. This was, like I said, the promise of the gospel is forgiveness of sins here, life eternal then. This is addressing the then. In this hope, you were saved. You were looking for that dealing with eternity. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Now, I have turned to old People like to know what people's view of the end times are. I really don't care. Um, I don't have a view of the end times. Because I don't think the scriptures provides one. What happens... And, and I turn to, this is my end times passage. We wait for it with patience. And that which is seen, we hope for it with patience. That which is seen is not hope. And everybody's eschatology, everybody who's trying to tell you the story of what's going to happen, what are they trying to do? They're trying to write a fiction. They're trying to write a narrative that will become so crystal clear in your hopes and aspirations that you will virtually see it. It's destroying your hope. The Christian is supposed to hope without seeing. And their hope is then measured not by specificity about their hope, but by patience. Just go on hoeing potatoes. You go on doing what you're doing, hoping patiently without seeing. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we ought. But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with sighs too deep for words. Now, this is what this is the first passage that I was mentioning before. The first verse that has been taken out of context and applied to something else entirely. Charismatics use this passage to think, say it's speaking about speaking in the Spirit, gift of tongues. But if I read the three verses earlier, the whole creation groans. We groan. The spirit groans. It's all the same word. Okay? It's all the same word. The, the creation is waiting to be set free from the futility. We're waiting for the adoption of sons. And the spirit groans for us because we don't know how to pray regarding the redemption of the body. 
Because we don't see, because we don't know, St. John says, it does not yet appear what we shall be like. But when he appears, we know we shall see him, we shall be like him. That, we don't know what that's going to be like. We don't know, you know, if you get on your knees to pray about the resurrection, to pray about the end of the world, whatever it is, you don't know what to say. St. Paul didn't know what to say. And he was a saint, an apostle. And he didn't know how to pray as he ought. And so he said, so the Spirit in us intercedes for us with words, prayers ineffable, unspeakable things that can only be answered just by the groans of hope. We know that the, the, the difficulties of this life, the difficulties of the creation is, causes it to groan. We know that the persecutions and the difficulties of life cause us to groan in our patience, waiting, bearing the load of life, waiting to that adoption. And the Spirit, he who, and he searches the hearts of men, knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. I don't have to know how to pray as I ought regarding the resurrection of the body, because the Spirit knows the will of God, and he knows my mind. Because he is in me, and I am in him. And consequently, he is taking that load, he's taking that, that burden of how do I pray about the coming? How do I pray about the blessed hope? I don't know how. I don't know what to say. I don't know what the special password is to get through the gates. I, I don't know anything. And I don't plan on knowing anything. I'm busy being patient. God is interceding according to his will. And then he comes up with this great declaration. Now, this is another verse. The next verse is one taken out of context. We know that in everything God works for good with those who love him who are called according to his purpose. How many times have you heard that quoted? About everything. Oh, Johnny broke his leg, but we know everything where God works together for good. I don't know. What's that line in Prince's Bride? Uh, that word, I do not think it means what you think it means. Inconceivable, was it? Mm -hmm. Here, I People are applying this verse like it was some sort of, you know, slap on plaster they can put on anything. It's a band-aid. Eh, put that one on there. It works. All things. This is one of the things. It's a broken arm. Not that God can't use Johnny's broken arm to teach Johnny something, because Johnny needed to break his arm. But this is about the glorification of the saints. This whole passage, from front to back, he is Back in the early part, he is saying, your bodies are still dead. How do we deal with that? You're going to die, but you're going to be raised. And the nature of this resurrection is our whole creation groaning and all of it waiting or pushing towards it. And we know that God is working everything together for good with those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. And this is his purpose. For those whom he for and this is the next verse that is taken out of context. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Now, anytime you had the word predestined show up in a verse, uh, Calvinists start foaming at the mouth and, and want to talk about determinism. This is about determinism, but it's not about that determinism. Because you're saying, St. Paul's trying to teach us about how assured are we that we're going to be glorified. Because that, that's the point, right? To give life, he has promised in verse 11, to give life to your mortal bodies. We will also be glorified with him. We're waiting for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. 
God is going to work this out. And he's interceding for us himself through his spirit to that end. And he's going to work it all together. And those whom he foreknew, you, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That's the resurrection of the body. You're going to, when you see him, you shall be like him. What do you think conform to the image of his son means? That you will shift to be like the Lord Jesus Christ in order that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, key point, he also glorified. So the things God is doing in you, however you believe about determinism, about determinism to the uh, salvation and the like, election to salvation, um, is no never mind in this passage. Because this group was foreknown before they were predestined. This destiny, which is a strong destiny, this is a strong destiny. He wants you to cash this one at the bank. You can't lose this one. God's going to take you, whom he foreknew, even though you're, you've, you've been living and dying in your mortal bodies, groaning away, he's going to predestine you to the conformity of the image of his son. He is going to call you to that end. He is going to justify you to that end. The word means justify just means to make righteous. He's going to make you righteous and he's going to glorify you. Okay? That's his assurance in this. And he he closes with this kind of uh, waving the flag for it. What then should we say to this? If God is for us, who can who is against us? I think uh, Ray Lewis quoted this passage at the end of the Super Bowl uh, inappropriately. One more, one more time. Um, I think he's like to claim that somehow Baltimore was God's team. And although I let won 11 bucks on that game, um, he was wrong. And one more time, people jumping into the middle of a passage and not reading the book up to that point and going, oh, what were you talking about? Not... Anytime you get something, if God is for us, who can be against us? He's talking about this, this trajectory of God's destiny to conform you to the image of his son. He's going to call you to that end. He's going to justify you to that end. He's going to glorify you to that end. It's a fixed destiny, a thing that's going to happen. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, will he not also give us all things with him? I mean, for heaven's sake, the guy died himself. His own son dead. We didn't need to. There was no moral obligation that Jesus died for you. It's entirely a gift. You didn't deserve it. You deserve to be destroyed for your own sins. If he gave you that, won't he give you all these things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Is it Christ Jesus who died? Yes, who was raised from the dead, who was at the right hand of God, who indeed intercedes for us? Who shall separate us from the love of God and Christ? Love of Christ. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? He is obviously not saying the Christians are going to get some good life, everything's going to happen to them in this life. No, he's going to say, this is, this is the encouragement that says, look at those things, measure them from what they are against the living God. The living God's love, who gave up everything for you already, is not going to stop here. 
He's not just going to have you go to your death in the Colosseum, being eaten by lions, and that's going to be it. Thank you very much for your service. You know, um, a little plaque on, the, on, on heaven's walls, so-and-so gave the ultimate price for his faith on this date. No. He has promised to give life to your mortal bodies. He has promised the redemption of your bodies. He has promised the resurrection. And he already raised his son. And he's saying nothing can separate you. And nothing is strong enough to stand in his way. As it is written, for thy sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Why does he throw that in the middle of this really encouraging and lifted up passage? Because that's what we're dealing with. And Christians are always given God grief when things don't work out for them. They got a headache. The colors bled in the laundry. Their favorite sweater shrank. Curse you, God. You know, something as bad as Job, you know, his wife saying, curse God and die. We're being as Christians, we know this is the trajectory of all life. This physical life will kill you. Without an exception, every single one of you. Some of you may be dead before me, which is going to save some. Frank, maybe. He's old. Not as old. Saying I'm old. <laughs> no, no. Tammy, Tammy's old. He says, For thy sake we are being killed all the day long. For thy sake we are being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. He says, Now, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. This promise, all the way back in verse 11, to give life to your mortal bodies because our bodies are still dead because of sin, you have to know what, you've been handed a baton of your Christian life. You're running this physical lap right now, alive in the spirit, changed in the spirit, faithful to God, having been died to the law, having come to Christ. You've been saved, but you're still carrying this cadaver around with you that is terminally ill. And that terminal illness will take your life and we're more than conquerors through him that loved us. Through all of it. Doesn't matter what. No matter how bad it could get. You can't imagine the early Christians in the Colosseum with their children and their wives standing there waiting for the lions. And the histories have that they sang hymns. And they died. Uh, Nero, we have this in uh, some of the Roman uh, manuscripts, would wrap them up in waxed uh, linen and tie them to stakes and use them as torches for his parties. He was a nut. Ruler of their, of their nation. Uh, you don't have it bad, but it can get bad. And even at the worst, the Christian says... Yeah, it's always been dying. I'm always dying. And I might die in a car accident, I might die of cancer when I'm 20, I may die of cancer when I'm 90. But I'm going to die. And the suffering of this world, the futility, the death and decay, which all the creation groans because of, is because we're all waiting for the redemption. 
They want to be enjoy the becoming the children of God. We want to get full adoption as the children of God. The Spirit is, is laboring in His prayers unspoken for us in those groanings. And God, who has given all things already for His church, is not going to hold back. This is a fixed, firm, strong destiny. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I am sure. And it's an interesting list. Death and life. Life won't separate, you know, because some of us are able to face death. Facing life is harder. You know, I, what if the Lord is merciful to me and I get another 30 or 40 years out of this? Old cat haver. I would be a mess. I have bad habits. It's going to be a sad, slow way to go. Rachel's going to have to take care of me. <laughs> or, if you want to ask, what about other powerful agents? The princes, principalities. This is not earthly princes. This is heavenly princes. Angels. What about them? I mean, we're talking about metaphysical beings with wills of their own. What if could they separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus? Nope. Things present, things to come, powers, any powers, high, low, anything else in all creation. And the idea is you can't be separated. This is predestined. You will be conformed to the image of his son. And that's the promise, the hope that does not, what, it's, what is faith? The assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And you wait for it with patience. And you just say, hey, just onward, on this little part of the ride where I'm dead at the end, and then I live. But we already did that spiritually. We were dead. We died. We had a life of death, living by our passions and by the law. And then we died in Christ. We're raised to newness of life. We've already done this. We've already experienced the newness of life. We've got this little example. We know what's happened. We saw it happen in Christ. We saw it happen in ourselves spiritually. And now we're just waiting for it to happen in our flesh. Well, that's the end of chapter 8. God willing, and I'm not dead next week, we'll be doing 9. Because everybody likes 9. And 10, which is a great gospel passage. Great. But 9 is one of those passages that all sorts of train wrecks of theology happen in, and we're going to try to avoid all of it. So, let's thank God. Dear Lord, we're grateful for the life ahead, for the life we have, and the life to come. In your Son's name, Amen.